Cartledge of RobCartledgeMinistries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views, even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, time now to preach your word. And Lord, I uh, pray that you will help me speak by the Spirit. Uh, what you want me to say and uh, how you want me to say it. And I pray that your grace will be upon me and upon all of us to receive what, you, what you're saying to us today through this uh, Critical Doctrine Sermon. And Lord, um, I pray that you'll really open our understanding. Just uh, help us to understand every word that I'm about to speak so that uh, we can get a lot of, out of it. Lord, I pray that we don't, our minds don't wander and drift while the words are being spoken, but that we really tune in and receive everything that the Spirit is saying. Uh, and I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Turn to, there's the verses up there, 1 Timothy 4.16. And keep your Bibles open because there's four verses that we're going to just look at. 4.16 says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So this is telling us straight away the importance of, of doctrine. That we should watch and watch our life and doctrine closely because if we persevere in them... We will save both ourselves and our hearers. So that's how important doctrine is. Doctrine saves us. Now let's go to 2 Timothy, which is the next book along. 4.3. Everyone there? Yeah. And it says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what the itching ears want to hear. So as we know that, and we're seeing a lot of uh, ministers today who are teaching unsound doctrine. Guys like Joel Osteen is teaching unsound doctrine. And the masses are running to him. He's got the largest church in America. And that's how many people have itching ears, you know, that they would follow him, even to their doom, in a sense, because they're not concerned with truth. They're concerned with what their itching ears want to hear. So he teaches a self uh, gospel. A gospel related to self. Now we go to Titus, which is the next book along again, and we've got one nine. Everyone there? Mm-hmm. And it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we should hold firmly to the trustworthy message. That means if it says something that we don't quite like, we still have got to hold firm to it. Because the truth is the truth. We can't change that. Now, Titus 2.1, just a little bit further along. And it says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So that's what we're doing today. Teaching what is in accord with sound doctrine. To the best of our current ability. Because as you know, our theology, my theology of 10 years ago has changed slightly. Not dramatically, but slightly over the last 10 years. And, and, And that's because... The more I'm in the Word, the more God reveals to me and helps me to fine-tune. I'd say in the sense of changing my doctrine, it's more been fine-tuned so that things are a little bit clearer now than they were 10 years ago. 
And I can imagine in 10 years' time, my doctrine and my theology will be even clearer, you know. And that's where you hear, you know, guys like um, Chuck Missler and uh, um, who else, William Lane Craig, these guys that have got, Ravi Zacharias, who have got more advanced years. Joe Schimmel, his doctrine is beautiful. He's got a, a such, the way he presents his doctrine is, is fantastic. Most sound doctrine I've ever heard is Joe Schimmel's doctrine. And we're going to just quickly look at Christology and we're going to be looking at a part of the sections that we're going to be studying. Now, if you remember, we've done, we did two sermons, two sermons and a bit on the deity of Christ. Remember that? The third sermon we did, the humanity of Christ, which concentrated on the incarnation and the proofs of his humanity. Yeah? Yeah. Everyone remember that? And we also did the union and the deity of and humanity of Christ in that time. So if you if you sort of got a bit of a vague recollection of that, the sermons are online. You can go back and take a look at them to refresh your memory. Today we're going to look at the kenosis of Christ. Okay, this is going to be an interesting one for us. Also the impeccability of Christ and also the earthly life of Christ, which are the events of his life and the offices he occupied. So we're going to take a look at that today and it should be uh, hopefully interesting for you. And next time, in, a, in about a month's time, we're going to complete the Christology uh, series within the critical doctrine uh, with doing the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, uh, the present ministry of Christ, and the future ministry of Christ. Now, these things are all vitally important, you know, that we understand these things because within the framework of this Christology that I'm teaching you, many cults have gone in and changed and twisted a lot of these views and and they've led multitudes of people astray because they've mucked up their theology of Christology. When you've got a, a wrong theology when it comes to Christ, what you believe doesn't save you any longer. When you don't believe he's the son of God, because it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish and have everlasting life. Now, when, he, when they're saying whoever believes in him, who? The Son of God. Now, if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're not believing in the, the Jesus who came to earth that we know. You're, you've created a new Jesus. Therefore, you're not saved according because your doctrine is false. That's how important doctrine is. Okay, so let's take a, a look at kenosis. The kenosis is, in Christian theology, the renunciation of the divine nature, at least in part by Christ in the incarnation. So it's the renunciation. Who knows what the word renunciation means? Giving up. Giving up. Exactly. So it is taken from the Greek word for emptiness, which is ekenosen, uh, what we say, kenosis. Kenosis is the self-emptying of one's own will and becoming entirely receptive to God's divine will. Emptying himself of his own will and becoming totally receptive to his Father's will. Now, if we see kenosis as referring to Jesus giving up his will to, pick up, to be completely receptive to God's will, then I agree entirely with the theory of kenosis. Uh, Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself is another way they say it in the NRSV. And if we go into that verse itself, it says in Philippians 2.6-8, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing. How's that? Jesus, God, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this scripture clearly refers to Christ's obedience to God by emptying himself of his own will to follow the Father's will. It does not, however, refer to giving up qualities possessed by deity. Can you see that? Now, this is where the kenosis theory goes a bit skew if. The doctrine of kenosis attempts to explain, and this is what many people believe, or many theologians, attempts to explain what the Son of God chose to give up in terms of his divine attributes in order to assume human nature. Since the incarnate Jesus is simultaneously truly human and truly divine, kenosis holds that these changes were temporarily assumed by God in his incarnation and that when Jesus ascended back into heaven following the resurrection, he fully reassumed all of his original attributes and divinity. Specifically, it refers to attributes of God that are thought to be incompatible with becoming fully human. For example, God's omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, as well as his aseity, eternity, infinity, and immutability. So they're saying that he gave those things up to become the man Jesus. But I don't believe that. There's plenty of reasons in the Bible why I don't believe that. William Lane Craig said, but if Christ divested himself, meaning gave up, divested himself in the incarnation of any attribute that was essential to deity, it would follow that he thereby ceased to be God. So if Jesus came down here and he gave up all of those divine attributes, then he would cease to be God. He would just be another human. But that wasn't the case, was it? If Christ gave up his own divine qualities, then he would cease to be God. But I would argue that Christ did not give up the qualities of deity, but was merely restricted in his use of those qualities, in keeping with God's will for their use. So in the sense that, you know, how God is everywhere present. Well, Jesus had the capacity to be everywhere present, even in his physical form, but God caused him to be everywhere present only when he allowed him to be, and had to be specific to where God chose him to be present. But he still had the capacity he, he had the capacity to be everywhere present because he would have been everywhere present in spirit. I remember Paul was said, I'm with you in spirit and I'm there witness to that in spirit. So even Paul could say that in his spirit was witnessing something that he wasn't present in. 1 Corinthians 5.3. You know, so he assumed that through by the Holy Spirit. He didn't assume it by his own capacity. He assumed it because of God's capacity to be with them in spirit. That's an interesting one. It just came to my mind. So Jesus showed his omnipresence. What's omnipresence mean? Present everywhere. Present everywhere. He showed his omnipresence in seeing Nathanael by the fig tree without having been there. That's in John 1, 48 to 49. He showed his omniscience. What's omniscience? All-knowingness. He knows everything. He showed his omniscience when he told Peter to catch a fish and that there would be a coin in its mouth. Or when he could tell what people were thinking. So many times he, could, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking and he knew what the people around him were thinking and he would actually comment on their thoughts. You imagine that, how confronting that would be. Okay, Kira, I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> and he knew about the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman. He yeah, the, he knew her entire life. He says, your current man you're with is not your husband. You've had many husbands. And, you know, and then she went back and said, he told me everything I ever did in my life. So Jesus had an incredible capacity for omniscience. He showed that consistently through Scripture. He also showed his omnipotence. Now, what's omnipotence? His power. His power, yeah. By calming the storm. 
We all know the story where he calmed the storm and he walked on water. And we also know he healed everyone who came to him to be healed. So everyone who came to him, he had the power. He was omnipotent. He could touch someone and they'd be healed. And people could come to him knowing he was omnipotent. All they had to do was touch the fringe of his garment and they'd be healed. The next point we're going to look at is the impeccability of Christ. And impeccable simply means sinless, without fault and flaws. So Jesus was impeccable. Put up your hand if you're impeccable. Why am I here? If you're impeccable. How many people do you know is impeccable? It's hard to even grasp that concept of someone being perfect, isn't it? You know, but Jesus walked an impeccable life. He was so perfect that no one could find fault. Actually, when the Pharisees were trying to find fault with him, they only found fault because it, uh, his theology conflicted with theirs or his statements of truth offended them. But it wasn't because he did anything wrong. And actually, they couldn't find any reason to stone him except for him claiming to be God or to crucify him. They wanted to stone him many times, but they couldn't. But they ended up crucifying him for that claim that he claimed to be the Son of God. But they couldn't find anything wrong with his ministry because his ministry was perfect. So he was impeccable. In relation to Christ, it does not mean that he was not subject to weakness, however. It's got nothing to do with weakness because Jesus was subject to weakness. You know, he couldn't carry the wooden cross. He had to get help to carry the cross. Um, he they said, would be get tired. He would he'd suffer from all the things that we would suffer from, but he was still perfect. So it does not mean that he was not subject to weakness, but that he was perfect in all his ways and without sin or fault. And there's two views of impeccability, and these are Jesus was unable to sin or that the possibility was there that Jesus could have sinned. Now, they're both really, you know, you could probably get a few th- scriptures that could back either one of those. I sort of believe that Jesus was unable to sin. At the same time, he knew, because he knew human nature, he knew how someone could sin. And he probably knew the concept of being able to sin, but he was so powerful in who he is that he just could not sin because he couldn't bring himself to doing that thing because it was so conflicting with his nature. You know what I mean? You know how animals have human instincts and human natures and they don't some animals don't act like other animals they just can't do the same type of thing and and it's just not within their capacity to do it and that's a pretty you know gross sort of way of looking at it but Jesus it wasn't in his capacity to do it because he had no sin in him to draw him into doing it that's probably a way of looking at it So in either case, we find out from Scripture that he did not sin, and that's really what it comes down to. Whether he could or couldn't, he didn't. Yeah. So we can argue all we want about that. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Charles Ryrie said he was tested with the view to proving he was sinless. It does not say that he was tested in every particular specific test that man can be put to. His temptations were really not to see if he could sin, but to prove that he could not sin. Nevertheless, they, the temptations, were real, for the reality of a test does not lie either in the moral nature of the one tested or in the ability to yield to it. So the test really, all they did was prove that he couldn't sin. That's what they were for. It's good to know we have an impeccable God, isn't it? You know, 
Because was Muhammad sinless? No. No, absolutely not. His early life was nothing like his later life, and his later life, even then, historians will say that he wasn't a sinless man. He did things he shouldn't have done. Buddha only came to this, you know, the Eightfold Path because he knew sin. He knew what, and he'd been part of that life of, of being a, a sinner. And don't let any Buddhist try to tell you that he was sinless because he wasn't. You know, he was a normal man like any other man. Now, the earthly life of Christ, we're going to quickly take a look at as well. The earthly life of Christ is doctrinally important, and this is why. One, it proves his worthiness to be the saviour as an unblemished sacrifice for our sins. If he didn't come, he couldn't prove his ability to be our saviour. If he didn't walk on this earth and and suffer what we suffered and, and took part in what we are in, you know, in this world, then he wouldn't become an unblemished sacrifice for our sins. That's how important it was that Jesus came. The second reason is his earthly life became the perfect example for all of us who were to follow in his steps. See, now that we know Jesus, see, before Jesus, we just had the Old Testament and they had a, a they knew God according to the God that was on Mount Sinai that Moses came in contact with. But there wasn't that personal relationship as in we couldn't identify with God because he was so far from us. Now we have a God that we can identify with. You know, now Jesus is someone who has been like us and is still like us in every respect, but was without sin. So now we have this identity. Gee, well, he walked on on earth and he had the Holy Spirit and he he was able to live the impeccable life. Now with the Holy Spirit, can I live that impeccable life as well? Okay, we might not be perfect in it, but we're going to try, aren't us, to be the best we can for Christ, not for our own glory so we can say, look how good I've been, but so that God can get glory by our lives. So his earth life became the perfect example for all of us who are to follow in his steps. He paved the way for us to walk. It's really what he did. He came and showed us how to live a holy life. Without Christ, we, are, we would be lost in sin. If Christ never came, we would know how to get out of this jam that we're in. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus, as Jesus did. That's what it says in 1 John. Whoever claims to live in him. So if you're not walking as Jesus walked, don't claim to be Christian. That's what it comes down to. <clears throat> That's why I really get sick of people who claim to be Christian yet live the most worldly life. They get drunk on the weekends. They sleep with any girl that comes up to them or any guy that comes up to them if if they're a girl. And uh, they do all the wrong things. They swear and they curse and they they live a wretched life. And then they say they're Christian to boot. But the Bible clearly says, 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If we claim to live in him and call ourselves Christian, then we've got to walk it the same way. Amen? Yeah. His teachings were given to us, and this is the third point, his teachings were given us in his earthly life in relation to his people, the Jews, and also to the church. So without Jesus coming to earth, we wouldn't have the teachings of the New Testament, would we? Yeah. So these are three important points. So let's uh, look at the events of his life. The events of his life are divided into four parts. Um, The theological book I was reading from said three, but I've come up with a fourth. (laughs) So uh, the first is years of preparation, which were his birth, his infancy, his childhood, and the growth in the full manhood, concluding his baptism. There's not that much said on that. It is sketchy, but there are things talked about in 
in uh, the Gospels about his early life. The second event in, of his life were the, his public ministry in Judea, his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Uh, and, and in Judea, it was um, John 2, 13 to 4, 3, and also in the other Gospels as well. Uh, in Galilee, in Mark, uh, when he, he preached in the area of Galilee, Mark 1, 14 to 9, 50, and also his Perean ministry, which is Luke 9, 51 to 19 to 28. And if we just take a look at the map on that, if we look up here, we've got Galilee, so he started up there, and then he's got his Judean ministry, and he's finishing in, uh, with the Perean ministry, and that's where the transfiguration occurred and all that sort of stuff as well. It's interesting, isn't it? And, of course, he spread out along the way, you know, into the other areas as well. The third event of his life, or the third section where how we divide his life up into events, were the leading up to his crucifixion, typically known as the Passion Week. That's where he was uh, put on trial for his faith uh, and, and his, uh, his confessions, and then he was crucified. But the fourth one, and this is one I've, I've included, is his 40 days after his resurrection, because he still hadn't gone to be with the Father yet. So there was another period of ministry, and that was some of the most critical ministry that I believe he, he left in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts in the chapter 1, was where he told the disciples what they've got to do now. He basically left them church instructions on what to do from this point onwards. There was only a few words there uh, that are recorded, but they're all critical for the church. And a lot of the, the church has been based off those words of, from that event of his life. The offices he occupied. So Jesus occupied three offices in his earthly life. The office of prophet, priest and king. Melchizedek, he functioned as a priest and a king. I don't know whether he functioned in the office of prophet. It doesn't say so, even though he did speak words over Abraham, didn't he? As a prophet, as the office of prophet, Jesus referred to himself as a prophet. In Matthew thirteen fifty seven. he said, Only in his own home and in his own town and in his own house is a prophet without honour. So he acknowledged that he was a prophet because he was saying, I, I've been dishonoured in my hometown, among my own people, in my, among my own family. And Charles Ryrie said, Jesus was the greatest of all prophets, for he not only delivered God's message to man, but he also revealed God in his life and person. So he was the greatest prophet. His prophetic words can be studied in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to chapter 7. The Olivet Discourse can be studied in Matthew uh, chapter 24 to 25, and also the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 13 to 16, as well as uh, I've just added in here the Book of Revelation. Because it's the it was written by Jesus, or it was spoken by Jesus. You know, write these words, and 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 he wrote to the seven churches, and and so on. Also, in Revelation nineteen ten part B, it says, "For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." So what's that saying? It's just about everything, or basically everything he said is the spirit of prophecy. That's why the gospels are so profound, because they are prophetic in nature. Every every element of them, and all his parables, and every every part of his teaching. He off- occupied the office of priest. According to the writer of the book of Hebrews and Psalms 110 verse 4, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's in Hebrews 7, 17. Hebrews 2, 17 said, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for, or that he might turn aside God's wrath, taking away the sins of the people. So he was 
a faithful high priest. He was appointed by God, qualified, offered as a sacrifice for sin and represented his people before God. That's Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. So his office as priest continues today as well. He intercedes for us today. So, you know, every time you go to him in prayer, he's interceding for you. He looks to you. He, he wants to bless you. He wants, and he's, he's overseeing his church even today as the high priest whom we confess. We confess his name. That's why he said, you know, in the past you've, you've not used my name when you've come to the Father, but now use my name. So now when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we end our prayers. Um, when we're praying to the Father, we say in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how we usually end our prayers, along with amen. Also, the last one we're looking at is the office of king. This office was prophesied in relation to Christ in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, and also Luke 1, 31 to 33. And this is the scripture from Isaiah, and we should all know this fairly well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isn't that beautiful? That he's coming to take government. He's coming to restore peace to the world. He said when he's first coming, he said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And what that meant was he's coming to divide believer from unbeliever and when he comes the second time, he's coming to restore peace and he's going to give peace to the believer. But the first time he came and from since that time, it's been, what, 2,000 years now, it's been a sword, hasn't it? Divi dividing believer from unbeliever. So just to finish off on this, the officers he occupied, Charles Ryrie said, when he came, he fulfilled the requirements of that promised king, although his people rejected his claims, didn't he? Yeah. The people rejected him to the point of crucifixion. The result of that rejection was not an annulment of the kingdom promises, but simply a delay in their fulfillment until the second advent of the king. Jesus Christ is our king of righteousness. He is our faithful high priest and our holy and anointed prophet. That's who he is. His earthly life of love, devotion and sacrifice was recorded to remind us of the loving God who we are to come to and accept as our Lord and Saviour, despite our inability to understand everything that happens to us in our life. You know, we can't explain everything that happens, can we? You know, and that's, that's where we need faith to continue believing. You know, um, as we were talking in our Bible study on Wednesday night, you know, the as Chantel was bringing up about the people that she knows that are in wheelchairs mm -hmm. and their lives are shortened because of muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. And instead of coming closer to God, many of them are actually getting further from God because of their bitterness and anger towards God for putting them in that situation. Where I would think from my perspective, if I was closing in on death, I'd be thinking, well, I've got to get closer to God because I want to make sure I go to a better place when I die. And so really what we've got to do as as when we get into those situations, ask God, okay, why? But then give God time to answer and also be open to answer and also get into his word. Get into prayer. Seek him. You know, but if a lot of people ask the question but don't want an answer, they just want to hold their bitterness because it makes them feel better to be bitter, you know, about their situation and curse God as a result. So we've got to stay the course regardless of 
our life situation because we don't know uh, why God allows the things he allows. Amen. Amen. Coming up in the critical doctrine, and this is where we're going to finish off, we're going to look at wrapping it up with the last three points, which is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the present ministry of Christ, and the future ministry of Christ. So that should be interesting because there's a fair bit of prophecy in relation to that, especially looking at the present ministry but and the future ministry is his return. So we'll be looking at some of the doctrines in relation to the second coming. And who believes the second coming is getting closer? Every day. Yeah? Has to be, doesn't it? Because <laughs> with every 24 hours that passes, we are 24 hours closer. But what our perception of close is, is not close. No, that's right. And because he said no one knows the hour uh, that he, of his return, and because Jesus said that, and Jesus said not even the Son. Yeah. Um, now, I believe that refers to that God's still yet to give the exact time. Because sure. And all the time that we have now is grace to us to get it right. You know, grace for the church to preach the truth. Uh, grace to us to come into full knowledge so that we're not found, you know, short, falling short so that we can stand before him and be, you know, he, he can say, well done, my faithful servant, enter into my rest. You know, we want to we get to heaven and know that we've done everything in our power to uh, ensure that we've been obedient and we've lived up to everything he's called us to. Because there's nothing worse than getting there. I'll tell you what, you wish you could live your life over if when you get to heaven and Jesus says, you know, I've, you're saved, but get down the back there. You didn't live for me. You didn't care about me. You didn't follow my word. You didn't read my Bible. You weren't. You were lacked interest. You had no passion. You know, and those that have lived according to His will will receive higher place in the kingdom of God. As simple as that. You will be judged just because you're Christian. Don't think you're going to just have an easy time. You'll get to heaven and you will regret living a life of lack of concern for the kingdom things. And it's easy to not have a concern for the things of the kingdom. It's very easy because life gets in the way. Everything else seems so much more interesting than listening to a sermon. You know, sermons can... And if you're not in the Word of God, the sermons can seem really boring. Like this, this sermon this morning will seem so boring to you if you're not interested in God that much. But if you found this highly interesting, you'll find that you are in the Word. So the more deeper you go in the Word, the more this sort of stuff means so much more to you. But when you don't listen, to, read the Bible much, you'll be listening to this doctrinal thing going, oh, how long is it going to go? This is boring. It's really boring. Because you're not seeing the deeper understanding of the words that are getting spoken. You're not seeing the deeper theological uh, aspects of it. Because each word that I spoke this morning has impact, has power. And they're so significant to your eternal life. Yeah, they're significant. So they should be the most interesting things you've heard all week. But if they're not, that's an indicator that you've got to get home and pray. You've got to get home and read the Bible and really kick yourself along in the faith. You know, Get to the point where every, anything spoken of God is the most exciting thing you've ever heard and you're sitting up there with eyes bright and you're just, yeah, yeah, give me more. Preach on, don't stop. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's how they are in other countries. In China, do you know how long they preach for in China? Hours. There's been ministers who've, Western ministers who've gone over there and they start at 8 o'clock preaching uh, and they tell him you're going to be preaching 12 hours. 
12 hours. What, I've only got a half an hour sermon ready. You know? No, 12 hours. And he says, what am I going to preach on? He says, just let the Holy Spirit lead you. And so he started at Genesis and he just kept on going. That's what this one minister was saying. 12 hours of preaching and these guys are attentive and passionate and jumping up and down and they're sitting in a shed where it was like, you know, 35, 36 degrees humid outside and in the shed it was even hotter. And we get in Australia half an hour sermon on doctrine and we're just about ready to fall asleep. You know, that's the difference in our passion levels and it's really got, we've got to change. And the only reason we're like that is because we're slack in our attitude towards God. Because what I'm saying right now is not as interesting as an episode of Seinfeld on TV. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that uh, the words that I spoke this morning will really, really have a, uh, an impact on us to the point of really kicking us into gear and uh, wanting to seek you and uh, live for you. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that this sermon on, on critical doctrine will help solidify our understanding so that we won't have misconceptions of what the Bible really, truly says, that we'll really understand your word better and we'll understand uh, these critical doctrines, especially this one with Christology, which is so paramount to living a true Christian life. Because if we mess this one up, we've messed the whole lot up. Because, Lord, you are the Son of God, and you came, you functioned in three offices of a, a priest, a prophet, and a king. And, Lord, you laid your life down for us. And then you were raised from the dead after three days, and you were seen by up to 300 of the brothers and sisters at once. And then you ascended to be with the Father and sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Lord, this is pure doctrine. And Lord, we stand on that. Mm-hmm. And I pray that you will help us to even to pursue this uh, study of doctrine more closely until we really get a, get a grip on what the truth is. And we just pray that you lead us now in the rest of this week and guide us and bless our week. Bless us with plenty of time and passion to uh, read your word and to pray and to seek you and to listen to uh, sermons and, and whatever else you have for us, Lord. I pray that you really bless our week as from a Christian perspective, but also in, in every other area of our life that we're functioning in, which is um, you know our schooling and our workplace, etc. So. We just ask that you'll be with us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.